Speaking of environmental destruction, there's also, um, you know, a common misconception, I would say, that, you know, um, buying local is, especially when, particularly when it comes to animal products, oh, buying local, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing better for the environment, or I'm buying, you know, these, this grass-fed beef. And both of those aren't really true. So um, uh, studies have shown that the main um, pollution and carbon impacts of all food is at the point source, um, what goes into, you know, the resources for producing it, um, and just all that at where the production. And so you're going to get more or less about the same environmental impact from, you know, a cow uh, that was produced for your meal in one, in the state next to you, or if it came from, you know, the other side of the country. Uh, and the other thing is that comparatively from, uh, you know, CAFOs to, um, uh, to free-range grass-fed beef, um, the CAFOs are actually a lot more uh, land-use friendly because of how um, compact they are. And people seem to think that, oh, you know, if they're free range and whatnot, it must be that much better. Uh, I believe um, I, I can find a study for it um, that fifty-one uh, percent. Yeah, it's fifty-one percent of the war, of the country is used like land use is used for cattle no, no, grazing. Right, oh. but not not just that, but like but the mm -hmm. point about how comparing uh, grass-fed beef to um, factory farm traditional and yeah, right, and so like. Um, in, in certain communities, people will be like, oh, you know, well, I'm doing the better thing again by getting the grass-fed beef because, oh, it must be treated so much better as well. And that's obviously not true either. Uh, there is one uh, one point against that, and, and I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but uh, the, way, the way that CAFOs, the reason why CAFOs are worse than traditional farming, farming methods, um, and this is something that if you want to read more on this, I can link the article that I wrote on... Um, VAO about this, and it has lots of good sources there. Um, but the difference in CAVOs and traditional farming has a lot to do with, even though it uses less land, um, the amount of land that it uses, a lot of it is used for waste. Um, so the waste comes from this from the CAFOs, and they CAFOs by definition by uh, defined by the EPA are essentially just any any meth any type of farming that does only animal farming on the land and no plant agriculture that has over a thousand or whatever the capacity number of animals is. So a thousand is when it comes to cows and pigs, um, it's, a, it's, it's a bigger number for chickens. Um, and so basically like that is the definition of a CAFO. A CAFO doesn't necessarily have to be like a big, um, you know, building that has a bunch of animals like stacked up on top of each other. It is just any farm that doesn't have, um, that doesn't have any sort of plant agriculture on it that has a lot of animals. So when we're talking about land use and we're talking about CAFOs specifically, they're taking all of this waste of these thousands of animals um, over a couple acres of land, so maybe like 30 or 40 acres of land, um, which is about the size of my farm back home, and you're spreading all of this waste, this very nutrient-dense waste, onto fields. And then when that field and that nutrition capacity get like, heats hits the ceiling so that that no longer can take any more nutrients the soil then starts to leak those nutrients into groundwater which people then drink it impacts farms who are up to 30 miles around because of tree systems because tree systems are so um they communicate really well with each other and they are just passing on nutrients so whenever you have a bunch of CAFOs in a small geographic area, which happens a lot because uh, these big companies, these big agribusiness firms decide that they're gonna, they're gonna control a small area so they can get the, have their meatpacking plants close by to all of their other things. So their feed mills, their farms that grow the feed, their farms that have the animals that are called 
grower houses, their broiler houses where they have their animals, all of these things are all in a small geographic area within a couple of miles of each other. And this is supposed to be for efficiency. But what this ends up actually doing is concentrating all of the environmental damage on a small area. When you have more land um, intensive uses of like traditional farming where you have larger swaths of land, you can only have one animal per 2.5 acres. So if my farm, a traditional farm, um, we would only be able to have about 15 cows if we use traditional farming methods. If you compare that to a CAFO, um, you're talking about like they have like hundreds times the amount of animals that we would be allowed to have to have a traditional farm, right? So um, those the difference there shows you how the the nutrients are spread out. So if we had 15 animals on our farm, which we did at one point, we had more than 15. We had 20 chickens and all these other things. We had, but we had 15 cows on our farm on the entire 30 acres. Okay, they would spread out all of their waste over the entire 30 acres. But in a CAFO, they're spreading waste of a thousand animals in 30 acres. And so that is the difference between traditional and CAFO methods. Even though the other one is more land intensive and that is harmful to indigenous communities, it's harmful for in general for property, uh, people that don't own as much property because a lot of people, one person owns a lot of land, that kind of thing. Even though that's more harmful it doesn't concentrate all of it into one place, causing large amounts of, of environmental damage later on down the road. Um, a good example of this is the Chesapeake Bay area, Chesapeake Bay area, and you can look up that on Sierra Club's website. And I'm gonna, I'm done talking here. Sorry. About that. <laughs> That's a really good but, point. I mean, uh, I didn't realize it was that stark of a difference, but I think it's just important to share. Yeah, you know, both sides, I guess, as it were. Yeah, and I mean, I. Not entirely um, certain about that terminology, but I suppose that the big point there is that a CAFO can still be like grass fed and free range and have all those labels, but still have all of the same issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Grass fed and free range is like barely even like more space. So it's like, and it's like a little bit more space, but it's still a CAFO yeah. because it's yeah. still, yeah. So you could have a CAFO that is still grass fed and free range. It's just a bigger, it's just a bigger place. And that's not confinement method, right? So it could be just an AFO and be smaller. Um, it just kind of depends on how much space they're allotted for the state-specific laws. Because the United States is set up where uh, yeah. the federal government doesn't regulate agriculture, the individual states <laughs> do. And that is a problem, especially when the federal government is what's funding all of these things and agriculture is being is being like legislated on an animal welfare on a state-by-state -state level. It really sucks. Sorry. Yeah. I'm done talking about agriculture. I'm so sorry. I'm going to be an ag lawyer. <laughs> so that's like my whole life. And Seth knows I go on rants about it. So I apologize. Oh, I was just, yeah, because this is interesting for me. New Zealand, because this is something that's come out recently, is that the nitrogen uh, levels in our water uh, are still within the levels that we consider legal, but uh, uh, higher than the levels of what have been shown to be causing, uh, could cause bowel cancer and a lot of other health issues and things. And that's because we, yeah, we grow grass for uh, hugely explo exploiting dairy industry, like the last, like, 10, 20 years, the dairy industry in New Zealand has just gone out of control and taken over huge parts of the country that previously were just basically wildland or uh, beautiful rivers that were swimmable and now basically just waste um, collection places. Um, but yeah, so because you, 
if you if you're growing plants with this land, you, yeah, you need nitrogen and things to put in to help fertilize the plants. But then it returns to the soil and just kind of stays on the soil. Whereas the cows rip the grass up, uh, eat it, and then they uh, pee, and that goes right into the water table and goes into our drinking water. And New Zealand is like has dangerously high rates of uh, these bowel cancers, like higher than other nations and like, ah, connect the dots. Like where the dairy industry is killing us. Yeah, I'm so mad. Sean, KTS, do you have anything else to add before we get on to the last topic? It's a, it's a pretty big one. No, I'm good. You're all hanging on. I know that. <laughs> you blew, you blew honestly, my mind with the KFOs. <laughs> honestly, the problem is, is like we spend too much time together because like every time, <laughs> Every time I like think of something to say, either KTS or Rachel will get to it before I before it gets me I'm like, damn it, lost <laughs> my point. Like <laughs> it's so crazy because I feel like Seth and I talk every single day, but I don't think that we're ever thinking the same thing at the same time. I think that's yeah. great. That's a great. Yeah. That's a great. Yeah, that's good. Thing. Um, okay, I think we should split up this next question, Seth. I think you should read the first half, and I should read the second half because it's pretty long. Sure. So one crucial component that's shared between the ideals of anarchism and veganism is direct action, which is defined as economic and political acts in which the actors use their power, economic or physical, to directly reach certain goals of interest. Well-known examples of this in political history range from the civil rights movement to anti-war protests. One interesting statistic that I found out uh, is that in the 2003 Iraq war protests, garnered nearly 20,000 people in a uh, peaceful protest in San Francisco, and about 2,000 of them were arrested. In the animal rights movement, examples include rescues and property destruction by the Animal Liberation Front, ALF, and the Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty Campaign back in the late 1990s. So a form of direct action, which I would say brings the two together, which we have touched upon uh, many times in this podcast and earlier a little bit today, is uh, the idea of mutual aid as it focuses on helping those impacted most negatively by capitalism and provides an opportunity to expose people to vegan food. In fact, some animal liberationists have close affinities to the anarchist tradition and ideology, temperament, and organization. Not only anarchists in political outlook, many worked in small decentralized groups and underground cultures, as much as the same manner as the ALF. These decentered anonymous resistant units are akin to anarchist affinity groups in their mutual aid, solidarity, security culture, and consciousness building. Unlike the single issue focus that dominates the animal advocacy movement, the militant wing of the movement is more likely to advance the total liberation viewpoint, one that emphasizes human, animal, and earth liberation struggles must be interrelated in theory and practice because they stem from similar root causes and have overlapping dynamics. What is your perspective on the use of direct action and its important in furthering the goals of these movements? I mean, I think I think direct action is the most important thing to any movement. And I think direct action comes in a lot of forms, whether you're out in the streets, whether you're educating people online, um, but it's the constant flow of information and showing people that we can make changes. Take Al, for example. Um, I mean, you know, property damage, you know, preventing these actual farms from operating, stealing the animals, saving their lives. While it might be small scale, it's still important. It might inspire one person towards veganism. It might, you know, connect the dots for them. Um, so every form of direct action is very important. Um, 
to the overall movement. Like, I don't think we're going to get there. We're not going to get to that vegan world if we don't have direct action and if we're not, but then we also must be intersectional about it as well. Sean, have you got anything before? Honestly, I have nothing on that. Like, I, I completely agree. Direct action is important. Education is the most valuable thing we can offer people because no one's going to change until they actually take a, sorry, do a bit of a self audit and realize what's wrong, what they're doing wrong, what they can do to change it. And the only way you can do that is to show them that something is indeed happening that is wrong. And you're not going to always get the best reaction from a complete like militant in your face way, but you sometimes that's going to be what it takes. Uh, but yeah, same thing with anarchism. You need to educate people because I wouldn't have not considered myself an anarchist until I started talking to KTS. KTS is, I, if just anyone who needs to learn about anarchism, talk to KTS. He's a source of vast knowledge to teach you things. Uh, he'll have great conversations with you. You can piss him off a lot by telling him why certain things wouldn't work and then get into good conversations with him about how logistically you could change things in order to make them work. He's a great guy. Once again, I 100% recommend talking to KTS and even Rachel about anarchism. Oh, even Rachel, thank you. Even Rachel. Wow. Yeah, talk to KDS first. (laughs) No, don't talk to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Rachel, 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 here's the thing, though. I feel like with anarchism, we were like his students, and you're like like the top of the class student, and I'm kind of like back in the classroom chewing gum. Copying my heartbreak. (laughs) Using using signals so I can cheat on the tests, you know that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I've forgotten more things about anarchism that I remember at this age. Um, so maybe don't talk to me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but you know you know enough to like pinpoint the events for people to look up, like the anarchists in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, you know, a lot of things like that, like how their commune was actually working and stuff until like the communists turned on them type thing. Like I learned all that shit from you, dude. You just told me to look something up and like, you're like, this is an example of where it worked until exterior, exterior forces caused it not to. Yeah, you yeah that was kind of the same. Marx, when those Marxists team up with the imperialists, that's my favorite part. And then they tell me I have to be their comrade. Oh, you guys are making me blush, by the way. All right, yeah, direct <laughs> action, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, direct direct action is what it's all about. And I mean, I think being vegan is already action. Like, you've you actually changed something in your life, which is a lot more than a lot of um, people who talk loudly on Twitter can say for themselves. Yeah, you know, like, so actually changing um, something in your own life as a protest and a stand against injustice is... a the minimum step, you know, and it should be required and it should be as hard as it is to get people to do it. But, you know, if you've taken that step, that's the first step. Um, but then what other action you can take is, you know, there's so many forms and we need them all and none are more important than any other. So getting online and educating people is huge. Even just just living visibly is, is huge. People drastically over underestimate um, how much they're influenced by those around them. So just by having your friends around you being vegan and like, you know, living their lives, that's going to affect you and go, oh, hang on, if they could do it, why am I still eating meat? So, you know, 
those those small things is already starting down that path. Bigger things, you're know, actually going out on the streets, um, engaging in collective action protests and yeah, I think we do need to be doing more extreme things like actually occupying um, these farms, getting more visibility. But, you know, it's so hard because you, you're risking freedom for the rest of your life because we know how powerful these organisations are and how easy it is to get charged as a terrorist for, you know, just being at a protest. So it's, I say that cautiously, we do need it, but it's, it's going to, we need numbers before we can actually really start making dents, but yeah, I very much support everyone who's doing that and um, I think it's definitely the way forward. But also a major one is that we're doing this for the animals. We're doing this for all of those victims held in captivity. So we want to free them. To do that, we need to be providing them homes. So I think one of the major forms of direct action is figuring out how you and your life can provide space for rescued animals um, and think about what capacity you currently have, what capacity you could have in the future, how you, when you're um, thinking of moving and things, just keep those kind of things in mind that, you know, we're, we're doing this for the animals and if we hope to liberate them, we're going to need space for them. Um, so, you know, personally, I've taken that um, currently to rescue rats as many as I can. That's a very uh, great option for people living in an apartment, not not too sure where their future's going to hold. Yeah, unfortunately, rats don't have very long uh, lifespans. So, yeah, that does have the benefit of it doesn't commit you to um, a space for a long time. Like having a dog does make it a bit harder to you know, move overseas on a whim, blah, blah. Um, but also, you know, something that has um, always been kind of on the back burner for me is um, buying some land in New Zealand and creating a kind of communal space that would also be a sanctuary for animals and, and people and uh, we have to grow our own food and do all that lovely stuff. And and this is something I'm, over the last couple of months, um, taking a few more steps forward and I'm hoping to make it a reality within the near future. So, you know, uh, keep you. So are you, are you saying that we're all moving to New Zealand? Yes. Because... Yes. <laughs> So yeah, I think I mean I hope these these kind of ideas catch on and that more people, if you've already got land, can kind of convert them into a space that can hold people. We're going to have climate refugees and things that are going to need places to stay and just marginalised people within your community that need a space. But there's no reason that we can't create a space for both people and animals that can sustain both and really show that there is an alternative. We we don't need these hierarchies in place. We can live together and thrive without them. And that that's major direct action. I was going to say, like, I, I definitely have made similar plans for my future uh, to what you've been saying, Rachel. Uh, I will inherit land. Um, I already know I'm going to inherit land. Not a lot of it, but my siblings and I have already talked about, um, you know, starting to rescue animals and bring them back to the farm and to expand the amount of land that we have. Um, there's a lot of neighbors that don't want to live around where I live anymore. So, you know, it's, it's the market's cheap and it's time to start thinking about, you know, buying land in, in a rural area and, and do making those changes, um, which is doable because I'm going to be a lawyer so I can live literally anywhere in the world, not the world, in the United States, and still make a pretty decent living. And I, I'm, I know that that's a privilege. So yeah. one, one follow-up I have, um, sort of in contrast to direct action, 
The other form that most people know of in terms of political action is simply voting. And so how would you sort of convey to someone, you know, why um, direct action is more effective um, for, you know, uh, accomplishing your goals or, you know, getting the message across? Because, it's, it's, I mean, obviously we learn about some forms of direct action in school, like, you know, the civil rights movement and things like that. Um, but I would say that when it comes to American education, again, we're taught heavily that, you know, the main way you get change that you want is through electing officials and voting uh, for them. So how would you, as, you know, to explain to someone who is, you know, not as understood about direct action, why is that so much different from just voting? I'd say, like, fundamentally, the, yeah, if you well, if you can see that the state is oppressive and capitalism is oppressive, we're not going to be able to vote to uh, overturn them. You know, they, they're in charge of the, the voting. You know, they, we have a vote is a very limited uh, set of choices. And yeah, I mean, I I don't necessarily think that people shouldn't vote. Some anarchists have opinions about that, but I kind of like you know, vote if you want, but don't kid yourself about what you can achieve uh, with a vote. And I do have larger thoughts about electoralism as being actually uh, the opposite of uh, what we're trying to achieve or because it drains so much energy of what could be put towards direct action that could actually make a real difference. Uh, but I'd maybe passable to KTS here to uh, explain it better. So before I tell you, well, everybody knows I hate voting. So, but I will say this to everyone, please vote in your community. That is important. That actually has a direct impact on people's lives where the national election, uh, while it does sometimes gives us the lesser of two evils, uh, there's still an evil that needs to be combated. Um, but really why I think direct action is better than voting is because if you take something like for instance, what we do here in Oakland, where we, we go out, we buy food, we fill the community fridges. Um, we get donations from some really awesome restaurants too. And it happens directly. We know food is getting to people's mouths that way. Whereas when we put our faiths in a bureaucratic system, like for instance, food stamps, like what are the, the hoops that somebody has to go through to get approved for food stamps? Um, and some people aren't going to be able to get approved for food stamps and they're still going to be dealing with food insecurity uh, and other things like that. So yeah, you I have to have a job working at least 25 hours in order to get food stamps in most states. So, right. so that's, that's a huge part. Yeah. So like, you know, whereas if we go and fill a community fridge and, and people in the community are aware that these exist and they know where to go get meals and things like that, we're directly making a change now. Like I understand the process of the democratic system here in America is incremental change. You know, if you just keep voting the right way, eventually we'll get the changes we want, but people are living in the now. So we need to focus on them and trying to get them in a better position so we can create this better world. Um, and it's just, voting does have its place. Like, yes, like I will admit like, Donald Trump didn't need to be taken out of office. Like, even though I didn't vote, there was a sigh of relief in my my life when I heard Donald Trump was no longer president. Um, it's better for leftists across the board, I think, in regards to what will happen um, during protests and things like that. But at the same time, I know Joe Biden's no different. We still got kids in cages. Hey, um, 
But I think that it has its place in your community more than it does on a bigger scale. But at the end of the day, we can do more with direct action. And if more people were focused on direct action, like the possibilities are endless for what we could do. I have two things to say on voting. And I'm so sorry, and I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Rachel, um, in just a second. Um, my one, my number one thing about voting is that um, the only system in which voting, which it, which democracy works, is a system where everybody is on equal footing. And we do not live in a system that everybody is on equal footing. There is not equity in the United States. Um, and that starts with voter suppression for many people. There's different types of voter suppression that we face in the United States that are inherently racist. And one of those, of course, is mass incarceration of people of color. Um, when we and when we incarcerate large amounts of people of color, we're disenfranchising them as voters. We also disenfranchise people by putting large barriers into registration. People think that it's easier easy to register to vote because you can register to vote when you're at the DMV or you can register to vote up at the local thing or you can, you know, whatever, do it online. But you have to remember that not everybody has access to the information to do that. Um, not everybody has the time to do that. And not everybody has an ID. Um, so that also moves on to the fact that voter IDs are a form of voter suppression and not a form of actually protecting our democracy. There is no proof, no empirical proof in the, in the entire United States. There has never been empirical proof that voter fraud exists on a large enough scale that it actually impacts our elections. That is completely false and has been false this entire time. It, it, the idea that there is rampant voter fraud in the United States is completely a a rhetoric that is used by the right to control the voting process. And that is the truth. Um, that voter suppression, of course, it can it manifest itself in so many ways. And that's why I don't necessarily believe that democracy is the way to do it, that direct action works better, because everybody, no matter what their station in life is, can can do some sort of direct action in their life. Every person has the ability to do that. Not every person has the ability to vote. Um, my second point on voting um, is I just wanted to read a quote by by Rolf Waldo, Waldo Emerson, which who was actually um, in some of his works against voting um, for multiple reasons. But what can you say about a man who literally just like lived in the woods by himself for a long period of time? Um, he said, those who stay away from the election think that one vote will do no good. Tis but one step more to think that one vote will do no harm. And I think that um, that shows that it is important, I think, to vote on at least a small level. If you have the ability to vote, then you have to remember that if you don't vote, then the person that isn't that has been disenfranchised, who might have voted the same way you are, you're basically wasting two votes there because you can represent that person's interest yourself by voting for them. They can't vote to change voters to change voter registration laws. They can't vote to change the like the people that are in office. And so we need to vote to make sure that their interests are represented. Um, another thing is that your vote does matter in local elections. And that is what impacts you the most, especially if you're in the United States. I don't know how it works in New Zealand or in Canada, but in the United States, most of the things that impact your everyday life, the roads that you drive on, the access to, to health care you have, because it's on a state-by-state -state basis, the access to um, all social programs, to free college, all of these things are things that are regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, if you want weed legalized, that's a state-by-state -state basis right now. It, it doesn't have to be. 
but it is right now. So if you're talking about like, oh, my vote doesn't matter, sure, your vote doesn't matter in the presidential election, but your vote matters in your gubernatorial election. Your vote matters in your uh, state representatives that are being elected. I mean, people in Tennessee specifically don't vote for state elections, but we have a 95% Republican 95% Republican government when 50% of our citizens are are not Republican. 50% of our citizens are either um, d Democrats or independents. But for some reason, we have a 95% Republican government and they are perpetrating um, gross, gross harms against trans people right now and against women's reproductive rights and against protesters' rights. All of these things are happening in Tennessee and other states like mine because people don't believe that their vote matters on a local and state level and it does. Um, and that's all I have to say there. I think also you guys have a huge problem with just the two-party system. Like you guys only have two choices. And in that case, you're only ever voting for the lesser of two evil. And that's why it's important, again, on um, local levels, because, you know, there is opportunities for, pe for people within really just the Green Party is the one that actually has power outside of uh, Democrats or Republicans. I think there might be a libertarian here and there, um, you know, in local seats. But I know for a fact that there are are Green Party members um, at, you know, citywide or town council levels throughout uh, the United States um, that have made an impact. Um, I believe, uh, do y'all know uh, Professor uh, Richard Wolf? No. So he is um, a professor of economics at uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, and uh, he is a Marxist and you know, he runs a bunch of different really cool news networks about socialism and economics and things like that. Um, but, you know, he was a Green Party member, I think, on uh, a city council in Connecticut. And, you know, they did a bunch of cool stuff. I don't remember exactly. But, yeah, that just goes to show that, sure, you know, at the um, national level, the two-party system is just has a chokehold on everything. But at the small level, yeah, we can, you know, make a small difference. I think it's important, yeah, I think, but starting there is where it needs to start because everything needs to come from the bottom up. If we if we depend on the hierarchy that's in place to kind of liberate us, uh, we're just, it, that's a lot of wishful thinking that's never going to happen. And I think really what we need to do is focus on our communities and then strengthen those communities and go from there. That's why I do think it's important to vote on your local level, but I don't think on the larger scale, just, you know, going back every four, eight years between Democrat, the Democrat, Republican, uh, we're really going to do anything because all they do is spend, you know, the first half of their presidency undoing everything the last president <laughs> did just so they can put their bullshit into place. So it's just, you know, at the end of the day, the only people that uh, suffer are us, but also people across the world that, you know, regardless who's in power, we just bomb the shit out of for, you know, our own imperialist interests. Yeah, that's, that's, yes, yes. Sorry, go on, Seth. Yes. Big issue that I recently, unfortunately, found out, and I don't know, again, if this is as much of an issue in Canada and New Zealand, is that politicians, not only do they lie to you, to your face, you know, um, nowadays through social media, usually, but on the news as well, but they also, you know, almost always make promises on the campaign trail that simply just, don't happen or they just choose not to. Um, and it's like this crazy amount of um, 
almost brainwashing that, you know, because they're in this amount of power, they can say, oh, I'm going to do these things, so you should vote for me. But then after they get your vote, you can't take it back. So they have no actual reason to do the things they said they were going to because you've given up your, your vote to them and that's all they need. Yeah, and also there's no there's no system of accountability like you're saying. There, I mean, we saw in this last presidency that there's no system of accountability that functionally works. We're supposed to have the impeachment process to get rid of somebody who is harmful to our system. We're supposed to have checks and balances in this government, and we do not. We absolutely do not. The two-party system doesn't allow us to have checks and balances. For example, right now, we have a fully democratic, fully democrat like government. By theory, that should mean that things should be changing if that's what their actual goals were to do. But their goals aren't to change anything. If they were, we would have we would have a completely different America. They could change everything today if they wanted to. They could literally draft bills and change the entire system, right? And make people realize that it's good in the next four years. But they're not gonna do that. Because if they did that, that would disturb the status quo and make room for more parties to come forward. If they progress things to the point where people got used to things being progressed, then they would make the two-party system unworkable. And if they did that, then they would lose power. So they benefit from all of this exploitation. They benefit from every single piece of exploitation the United States goes in. And so like Democratic Party to me is dead. They're, to me, they're basically Republicans at this point. Um, and I can't, I can't myself affiliate with that. Leading on um, from that, I think one of the biggest dangers with like electoralism is that people overestimate the power that individual politicians have. I mean, in some sense, they have huge power because they can you know, make things terrible uh, very easily, um, but also they're beholden to a lot of other actors that if they step out of line, they will lose their power. So a lot of the, the power is actually behind the scenes. It's not the ones who are talking to us making those promises. They make those promises because they have to make the promises because otherwise the other guy will make better promises and then we'll get all the votes or someone else will take their place and um, will make these grandiose promises. So, like, it's, it's the system rather than just we getting the wrong people there. Like, the system makes them have to make these great promises, but then when they actually get in power, those who help them get in power and the, the actual uh, actors who would be in charge of changing it, there's too much resistance to it. Which is I, I why we need campaign finance reform. Sorry, go campaign finance reform. <laughs> I mean, if, go for if it. HR one passes, that would actually change things a lot, and that's dependent on the filibuster reform. So continue. I mean, in one sense, yes, like absolutely, it does need to change. That would um, change things for the better. But again, I'd say that's some like it's it's just such a small part of the issue. We need radical change. This this idea that we can solve uh, big problems through incremental change is quite dangerous. We're this close to absolute calamity. And so by sucking energy into voting and electoralism, uh, if, if that's taking away energy from direct action, then it could be causing harm. So that, that's yeah. where I see like whether it's mutually exclusive or whether it's adding to the overall direct action. Because I mean, here in New Zealand, like we don't have quite the same amount of um, like lobbying and huge money and there's a lot more transparency 
and that thing. But we still have got the same issues. We still have our politicians making these huge promises. Like, I mean, everyone loves Jacinda overseas, but she made all these wonderful big promises and then she gets in power and she's not doing anything. Um, she just makes these really nice speeches and people love her. Um, but it's... But like I, I know a lot of people who work for these ministries and things, and you know the uh, the prime minister will appoint a new um, minister for a particular ministry, and then everyone within the ministry is just too stuck in their ways, and so they'll um, just not do what, even if it is a good minister who's motivated and actually wants to make real changes, they can't just change the ministry on a whim, like the. We underestimate uh, how easy it is to change these major oppressive institutions that we have just by getting the right people in power. Like, to get real change, we can't vote for it. We have to do more. I wanted to give an example of incrementalism and how it doesn't work. This is a really good example and a very topical one. Um, so in my research of learning about inter international animal law, I, I realized and I recognized that there was, oh my gosh, none of you will understand why it's funny that I said both realized and recognized together. That was a tax joke. Anyway, going forward, um, I realized that that there was a, an organization called the OIE, which is the World Health World Animal Health Organization. Um, they've been around since 1924, and they came about after the 1919 Spanish influenza um, pandemic. So they were organized because they realized that animal husbandry was the reason for most disease across the world. This was in 1924, 100 years ago, essentially, almost 100 years ago. This organization has 192 member states, meaning that most countries in the world are a member state of the World Animal Health Organization, the OIE. So the question is, if for almost 100 years, most nations in the world have been aware that animal husbandry causes pandemics and epidemics, why have we seen the growth of animal husbandry and not the you know, the, the demise of animal husbandry. And that has 100% to do with the fact that they chose to use an incremental model in 1924 that said that over time, we will change animal welfare standards slowly. The standards that they put together were then the standards that were, that ruled animal international law up until 1965, which is when um, there was a change in the UK. It basically sent out the five freedoms and the five freedoms have, has grown and has become the basis of, of animal international law. Um, and But that has been the basis since 1965. So we have seen like an incremental model. It's only slowly changed. There haven't been any large changes in the way that we see animals in the law at all since 1965. This is still the way we see them is the same, is that they have these five freedoms or these seven freedoms, depending on if you look at different interpretations of it, um, and that we're supposed to respect those things. But it doesn't give actual guidelines. It doesn't give actual you know, um, models for how to change things. Um, and so the question is, if that is how we're going to handle the, the animal pandemic relationship is, is you know, incremental, obviously it didn't, it didn't work. Because right now we're in a global pandemic that has lasted over a year, right? Um, not for Rachel, but for the rest <laughs> of the world. Um, we've, you know, we've experienced almost total collapse and we're only seeing animal husbandry grow. Um, even during the pandemic, we saw, even though like people, you know, we saw dairy industry dies, so a couple companies closed, right? But people are still buying meat in large amounts and like the 
and CAFOs are still growing and the numbers are still going up, even though they've been aware of this for over a hundred years. Um, it's not a, it's not a new problem. Same with environmentalism. You can watch TV shows from the seventies and the eighties and they're making jokes about how the world, about how the world is going to burn and how the environment is falling apart and there's no ozone layer. And if you live in 2020, you think that that's something we have only known for like a couple of years that the world is supposed to end because of environmental damage, but they have known for almost an entire century that environmental damage was gonna to go to the point of, of mass extinction. And they decided to make it an incremental model to put to implement an incremental model that it was going to change slowly over time and look where we are in 2020 not knowing if we're going to live another 20 years well specifically with environmental issues um not only i didn't know about the incrementalism model on that but that's not surprising unfortunately the one of the other bigger issues is that i believe back in the 70s when you know i think um it was first discovered about the man uh the human Im impacts on climate change the first people that found out about it were actually the oil and gas companies they found out about it and they suppressed the information because they knew that it would hurt their bottom line, which is so disgusting to me that, you know, people have gotten so warped with the idea of profit that they'll put that before the planet when you have that much power as a corporation. I think I believe that the the text you're referring to that was like the beginning of environmental science or the the realization of environmental damage. Um, there was a book called The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And that was the first really uh, spiritual, like not spiritual, but societal awakening to environmental damage was The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, um, which if you haven't read it, it's only $10 um, on a certain website that I'm not gonna promote. Um, it's only $10 for a print version of it. I think you should definitely read it. It's really, really, it's really, really important to understand environmental science. Well, something I was, um going to add, um, I'm not sure if it quite follows where the conversation led, um, but I think like a big difference in the kind of ideals of people who think that we can change things through voting versus like the kind of anarchist idea is this idea that we just need to put someone in charge to fix it. Oh, we'll just get an organisation and they'll fix it. And that's, but once you do that, I think you um, breed complacency in people, like because it, you know, we, people are like, oh, but we've got laws in place for animal welfare. Oh, well, if they're wrong, just make them stronger. Um, and you're like, we know that that's not going to uh, fix anything. Whereas to me, like, anarchism is something you do. It's you take responsibility for what you can change uh, within your own life and you recognise your part of the hierarchy and how you're contributing to it and try to pull yourself away from it. Um, so, you know, recognising that just because we've appointed someone in charge, uh, that doesn't mean that the problem's going to fix it. If anything, that can make things worse because once you've put someone in charge and, you know, like, we've all watched Spiracy by now probably and we know that by having an organisation that's stamped dolphin-friendly on the package of tuna, everyone just assumed that they knew what they were doing and that if you're buying this packet of tuna that it wasn't killing dolphins but then you just talk to them and like oh yeah actually we don't know what we're doing but you know this is what we do now we can't change it we're too big to change we can guarantee it <laughs> but we can't guarantee it you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is what they call in the law mere puffery <laughs> i'm not even i'm not even joking um Advertisements that are large and grandiose like that is called mere puffery under American common law. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I can give a really good example of that, but I don't know if- Pepsi points? 
Oh my God. Yes. Hey, Sean, yeah. what's up? I'm going to talk about it then. Let's go. Yeah. So there was a guy. <laughs> there was a guy. He decided that he was part of the Pepsi generation. So he went and bought, there was this like commercial and the commercial was like, oh, you can get this thing with this many points and you can get this thing with this many points and you can get a hairier carrot, you can get a hairier jet for 1 million Pepsi points. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to get as many Pepsi points as possible. So he sell, he uses his entire life savings, his entire life savings, which was not, not that much. And then he borrowed money from other family members and, and people in his life and decided that he, and he took out this huge, like huge, like $500,000 loan. And he got his 1 million Pepsi points. And this is five years after the, after the advertisement comes out because it took him a long time to get a, get a million Pepsi points. And he takes it up to Pepsi and he says, hey, I want my Harrier jet. Here's the thing, Harrier Jet is worth like a billion dollars. Um, there's no way that Pepsi could give him a Harrier Jet. It's not possible. Why would you ever think that? His defense, I'm part of the Pepsi generation, Judge. You wouldn't understand. So I'm not even joking. He goes to court. He takes it like up, up this, like up the court system. This is not just like he goes to a district court. No, no, no. He appeals this multiple times, okay? Finally, it is decided that even though he is part of the Pepsi generation, there is no reasonable reasonable person in the universe that would watch that commercial, right? And be like, I can get a Harrier jet with a million Pepsi points. And that was mere puffery. That's an example of mere puffery, right? So that is why you now see in every commercial that has some sort of grandiose claim that this is not an actual offer because he thought that it was an actual offer for a Harrier jet and he accepted it by giving his Pepsi points. And that is how do I explain your puffery to you guys? But that's so fucked up. The man deserves a jet. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you said you're going to give somebody a dead jet. jet. Sean, I can't Pepsi believe you points. actually made, like you actually like prompted me to say that because I was not going to tell. I wasn't going to talk about that case. The weirdest thing ever was was I was actually like just talking about this case at work the other day. The Leonard V PepsiCo Inc. Specifically because my boss was like claimed that the kid actually won the lawsuit against Pepsi. I was just like, no, I'm pretty sure he didn't. So we, I, I actually like looked everything up and that's sort of why I knew exactly where you were going with that. Oh, that's awesome. That's actually kind of crazy. Yeah, um, there's other examples. I'm not going to give them. One of them has to do with cows. I, I'm not going to get into it. Um, but so, yeah, so the, those claims, these claims that they have across the board, the USDA does not regulate most of the claims that any of the, at least in the United States, that any of these farmers put on their labels they put on there. So the only one that is like actually regulated by the USDA is the USDA grade A, right? The rest of them, like uh, like grass-fed and um, free-range. And, and, and humane. And humane. And uh, was it fresh? and uh, local, all of those labels that you see, um, they are not regulated by anybody and you can put it on whatever you want. I mean, organic is, but that's because organic means something. Um, the only reason GMO is even marked is because a independent organization decided to do it, not because the government decided to do it. So, um, I mean, that is, that just shows you like, 
the government's not doing anything for us at all. And these things don't mean anything. They're just mere puffery. Well, so that's a great um, argument for using uh, local um, plant agriculture. Not, I don't want to say local farms because we know what that refers to most of the time. Um, but yeah, so you know, if you see where your fruits and vegetables are coming from, then you don't have to worry about labels. You know that, okay, well, this was in this condition. Oh, you know, if you go to your nearest farm, let's say, you know, in most places in America, you can find at least somewhat a relatively close uh, community-supported agriculture. Um, and you can see the conditions that they're in, and you can see that um, that it's, you know, a lot better than what you might uh, expect or not know from a label. Yeah, yeah, that that's also something really important is is community supported agriculture because the community supported agriculture groups, at least that I know of, um, they don't feed into the types of farms that cause harms against immigrants um, and people of color in the United States. So if we're talking about like um, large like grocery store grocery store food that you're going to buy at any grocery store, um, even Whole Foods, right? That claims to be um, cruelty free towards humans. <laughs> yeah thumbs down. Um, they buy from these large farms that are that do gross harms to immigrants, like gross harms. I'm talking about, there's this video and you can look up North Carolina um, farm, farm workers living conditions. Um, and that shows like North Carolina is one of the worst perpetrators against immigrants when it comes to, um, when it comes to plant agriculture. And that's because they just have a lot, a lot of plant agriculture there. Anyway, so the houses that they live in, that they put these farmers in, that the government is supposed to inspect, like it's minimum, minimum living standards. And when I say minimum living standards, I mean like they're not clean. Um, they don't have enough facilities to be able to take care of themselves. There's like 20 people sharing one room. Um, they're sharing washers, they're sharing sinks, they're sharing toilets. Um, if anything goes breaks down or whatever, they don't have to fix it. The people who live there have to fix it, not the, not the owners. Um, and none of these buildings ever get repaired. And there's like places that get A ratings that are literally trailers that have been there for 20 years rotting in their foundations and they don't have to replace them. And that's considered equitable, equitable living that is provided by farmers. Um, and that is ridiculous. And so community support agriculture is not only good for making sure that um, making sure that they, there's not animals being harmed on the farm, but it's also another way to make sure that humans aren't being exploited by it through your food as well. Is everybody out of things to say? <laughs> Pretty so. much, yeah. <laughs> so one comment I wanted to end on uh, in regards to specifically the intersectionality aspect of um, anarchism and leftism in general is that um, don't look at just us, you know, the five of us as sort of the voice of reason for these kind of things. Specifically, never look at me as the voice of reason, period. <laughs> well, yeah, specifically anything. because this is like a literally a room full of white people. Well, okay, that's what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 We. A huge thing you could do with your own voice and your own platform is elevate the voices of marginalized people. Like, you know, don't overestimate how much you can do by yourself. Think of it more as how much you can help other people to get their voice out there. And they will probably have much better perspectives on it than you have if you're coming from a position of privilege. Right. And so what that means, what the importance of that is that, okay, so, you know, we got, you know, let's say radicalized through the ideas of veganism and punk and such. 
But when we're talking about the, the issues of imperialism and colonization and deforestation, you know, the people who, you know, were directly impacted by all those things tend to be radicalized a lot faster because they have these lived experiences and then they, you know, and then they understand the theory behind it and then, you know, explain, you know, to other people of their culture as to why, you know, this happened and whatnot. And so, again, you know, as we are sort of like the perpetrators and sort of like, you know, the hierarchy of, of uh, ethnic groups, you know, we should still be listening to, and as you said, um, furthering the voices of marginalized people. All right. Do you guys have anything you guys want to promote? <laughs> Gee, I wonder what. I mean, obviously, oh, our show is, that we, we record sometimes. <laughs> I think I think I think we should promote the work you and B are doing. Yeah. Your, so. Uh, so yeah, I guess I mean, if you want to donate to Salute to the V, uh, we have a Venmo account. Uh, we go out. We go to you know the cheap grocery stores and get some good plant-based foods. Uh, we also accept donations from restaurants and uh, a couple schools we get stuff from. But yeah, it's all vegan. All the stuff that we buy, we do take donations that aren't vegan because I'm not going to let sit there and judge people who are fighting food insecurity for what they have to eat. Um, but all the credit for that goes to B. She does all the hard work. I just fill the fridge sometimes. You're, would you have just... advice for other people who would like to start up similar things or help out with similar um, um, things? I mean, the first thing I would do is uh, look, see if there is any pantries or anything, community fridges in your area. Um, I don't know about... Specifically in America, Food Not Bombs is a countrywide... Uh, um, they're relatively anarchist, uh, I would say, in nature. Um, but, you know, they... Are, they, they basically run community fridges, but through a very decentralized approach. Um, they're very prevalent, at least in my state of New York, um, and because of how much poverty there is here. Yeah, we started uh, working with Food Not Bombs on doing a run on Saturdays for them uh, outside of doing the fridges. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's where a lot of the work is, is, you know, we need to be able to provide, right now, I think like 30 million people in America at least uh, suffer from food insecurity, and that number is just going up because of the current economic crisis due to the pandemic and poor governing. Um, so there's a lot of people in need of food. So I mean, give where you can. I mean, if you have local organizations that are helping to feed those in need, try to give to them. If you have some things you can drop off at a pantry, do it. The everything counts, even if it's just a can of groceries. Like you know, so find ways to help people around you. I mean, or, or even um, your time. I mean, you can volunteer your time at a food bank. That's going to help a lot right. too. Yeah. Volunteer. Vol they need volunteers and shit. Um, people in Tennessee and other places, places, I guess, might have similar things. Um, there's uh, might be a local thrift store that also is a, a benef like beneficent benefits um, people who are in food insecure. So at least here in Knoxville, if you're listening here in Knoxville, um, they're all of the CARM stores donate to uh, the homeless shelters around here. Um, and there's a bunch of other programs like that all over the country. So if, find and see if there's any uh, thrift stores that donate or that are wholly not, um, what's it called? What's it called? What's the, the big one that everybody goes to? Goodwill. Big thrift store. Goodwill? Not Goodwill. Don't Foundation go to Goodwill. Movie. Go to a local go to a local thrift store that actually benefits organizations. Did you say what's the big one? 
Oh yeah, it's it's Goodwill and Salvation Army. They don't yeah, help don't, anybody. Yeah, don't, don't go to those. Don't, don't go to those places. Salvation Army is known to turn away uh, members of the LGBTQ community when they're in need. So, oh, I'm sorry. Fuck the Salvation Army. Yeah, I'm gonna steal the change the next time I see one outside at Christmas. I'm gonna liberate it to some people who need it. All right. Well. Um, <laughs> Uh, does anybody else have anything they want to promote? I know that Rachel wants to promote rats. Yeah, yeah. Get <laughs> get, get some rats. Find there's rat people on the internet. Just just find rat rescue places near you, and you know, get get yourself some a little cage and some nice little buddies. There's great little animals to have around, and there's always going to be need for them to have homes because there's. Um, Lots of people would buy them as pets and then they don't want to actually look after them. So, All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this extra long uh, co-episode of Behind the Tofu and All My Carnists. This is a co-episode and it was really fun. And I'm really glad that we had you guys on. All right. Thank you. That's it only thank took, you it only took six months yeah, for you. us to finally sit <laughs> it out. Well, it would have helped if I didn't decide to move across the country too. So yeah, that kind yeah. of... Took everything for. Also, like, like people shouldn't invite me to, or KTS to anything. <laughs> well, you know, it's better than never. <laughs> All right, you know, we try to. You know the, you know the, you're the reason you can't have nice things, people. Well, yeah, that's me and KTS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm just as lazy as everyone else, so I won't uh, <laughs> pretend to be the organized one here. <laughs> And this has been Behind, Behind the, the Tofu. tofu. <laughs>